Hey, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. Take an honest look at the current administration. Talk about the election. Expose the existential threats to America. And I think there are some. Take a look at Portland. Is that our future? I hope not. Today, we'll speak with Professor Glenn Lowry. This is our series of conversations about conversations of race in America. Dr. Lowry is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences, Professor of Economics, and Professor of Public and International Affairs at Brown University. But first, a few things I'd like to discuss. Things about the election are heating up. I have one sort of large thought on this. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of unsettled quality out here with the election. Politics are unsettled. Politics are tough. It's hard, harsh. It's going to get harder and harsher. One of the reasons for that, apart from the contestants themselves, uh, toughness of the Democratic Party, if not Biden, and the toughness of Donald Trump, is the unsettled nature of uh, the mood of the American people. They're just not, you know, they're they're un, unsettled. They're not sure, you know, what's going on. Hey, what's going on? COVID. Looked like it was going down. Now it's going back up. Right. Uh, shutdowns, shelter in place. Economy gets shut down. People lose jobs. School. Can the kids go back to school? Probably not in most places physically, but not in the big cities anyway. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, Storms, hurricanes, flooding, even a little tropical storm, a little tropical storm. We watched that, those of us who, you know, live in North Carolina. It turned into be a major deal. Mm -hmm. And then... Just throw into the mix for fun. Sharks all over the damn place. What the heck is yeah, that Yeah, I saw a shark attack in Maine recently. Yeah, yeah. So we got eaten in Maine right. by a great white. Uh. You know, to be biblical, what's next? Locusts? Oh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's an unsettled time, and we shall uh, we shall see what happens. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep monitoring it here. Schools, uh, I think they should open. Uh, I think that parents make a decision. Is there no risk to children? No, there's a risk to children, but it's it's minimal. It's a lot less than it is to adults, a lot less than it is, a whole lot less than it is to uh, older adults. Um, there's been some numbers coming up lately that it's a little bit more these days than back in the spring. But still, the numbers are less than the flu, and we send kids to school in flu season. And hospitalizations are very, very few for kids under 18, and deaths maybe 20 in the country. Uh, one estimate is that there have been 25 youth suicides mm. attributable to COVID, isolation, and so on. So that needs to be balanced. These are the costs, the life costs, not just the learning costs, keeping people out of school. Online learning works for some kids, not for other kids. It's been a growth in homeschooling. That's what you do. That's what we do with Manny, yep. Absolutely. Works, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. 100% it works. Do it over the summer, too. We, yeah, we, we, you know, during the summer, we give him a week off and a week on, so he can take a little bit of a break. Uh, so as we record now, this is his week on. So he's home right now, probably doing some math or something. So that's a great thing, because he can keep up. Sure, right. And a lot of kids in the summer, they just lose a ton of ground. They lose a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. So that's a great thing. Anyway, uh, we'll see what happens, but uh, the teachers' unions are behaving very badly. It looks like extortion. Uh, you know, give us a lot more money and we'll come back. Safety, safety. All we care about is the safety of the children and, and us. But if you give us billions, we'll go back. Right. I don't know. You know, they're working at Walmart. They're working at Amazon. Mm-hmm. Working in hospitals. Schools as important as hospitals? I think so. Life's a race between education and catastrophe. The uh, flight from New York continues. Yes. People going to Connecticut. I, did you see the clip of Governor Cuomo? I did not. He said, please come back. Yeah, is he, is he the begging rich people. people to come back? And stay? Apparently 1% <laughs> of the taxpayers in New York 
city mm-hmm. pay 50% of the taxes in New York State. Wow. And a fair number of them are leaving. Mm-hmm. So he had this thing. We say, hey, come back. I'll buy you dinner. Come to my place. I'll cook. <laughs> They're getting nervous there. I saw. I just saw an article. Rents are going down in New York. Oh, wow. Any of the any of you who went through what we have gone through, which is our kids go to New York and you know paying ridiculous amounts of money for a hundred square feet, you know, and, and five roommates. It's five nuts. roommates. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. But change in demography. We'll get our friend Joel Farkas back to talk about that. Just a quick update. I noticed the uh, hearings. I'd like to get your view of this, Claude. <clears throat> uh, I guess it was yesterday. Sally Yates, former acting at attorney general of the uh, uh, Justice Department. Uh, talking in, a, in an interview with uh, Lindsey Graham on all of the you know collusion business and the uh, and the FISA application, mm-hmm. uh, and she said James Comey, FBI director, went rogue. He just went rogue. People wondering whether that means he went criminal, but very serious now. And the evidence, the case is building against what the FBI did in that time under the leadership of Comey. Uh, John Durham, who's been tasked to uh, produce a report on all this and maybe issue criminal indictments. He may be back before the election. Here's what I want to ask your opinion about. Do people, people care about this? I don't think so. I think yeah. we're so far removed from it and yeah. so much has happened since then that I don't think anyone's going to be in an uproar about this at all. I don't think it's on anyone's radar. Yeah, I think yeah. people, like I said, I think people are concerned about COVID, mm-hmm. about going back to school, about going back to work, about their savings, about the economy. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the election... You know, it's it's about Donald Trump. Yep. Say it's about Joe Biden. You know, there are certain questions here about his ability and his capacity to, you know, focus and be attentive. And whether there'll be debates now right. and all this mail-in balloting stuff that's going on. But it's really about Donald Trump, whether you like him or don't. And main motivation for people to vote for Trump is they like Trump. They like his policies. But even more so, the motivation for Democrats to go out and vote for Biden is they don't like they don't Trump. don't like Donald Trump. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that is a big, big factor. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Joining us now is Professor Glenn Lowry. Professor Lowry, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Bill. You bet. Are we having a proper conversation about race in America? A lot of people said we need to have a conversation. I'll get to that question later, whether we need to. But are we having a good conversation about race in America right now? Not really. Uh, I don't think we are. Um, and in fact, I'm not sure exactly what the conversation is supposed to be. There's, there's a lot of remonstration, demonstration, and uh, outrage and whatnot, but I, I don't know if there's any serious conversation going on. You know, it was Eric Holder, I, I remember in the, in the first instance recently, who said, we need this conversation. Several people have said that. There's a lot of talk about race. Uh, there's a lot of talk about systemic or systematic racism. Um, a lot of uh, corporate uh, apology going on, a lot of, uh, obviously, Black Lives Matter, you know, dominates the landscape. Uh, in what ways is this positive and in what ways is it not to a serious conversation about race in America? Well, I mean, some of this stuff is hard to say, Bill. It's just hard to say. Um, well, let's take this police crime, violence, Black Lives issue um, straightforwardly. It would appear to me the um, issue here is crime, is violence, is disorder. Uh, it is um, the behavior of 
some segment of the um, African-American population in the enclaves where black people are concentrated in the city, that is at the root of all of this. Now, I'm going to offer a disclaimer. I'm not saying that there aren't police who behave inappropriately. I'm not saying that there aren't incidents. But the incidents number in the handful, and the scale of the violence that we see unfolding in urban America right now is in the thousands. Right. So the, the fact that there is a mobilization on behalf of black lives, I mean, this is mind-boggling. There is a national, indeed a global, mobilization on behalf of black lives and a demand for conversation about race in which the epidemic of homicide taking black lives, the lives of children in the scores and in the hundreds and in the thousands is not even mentioned. The fact that people... Um, call for a national response to the devaluation of black life that doesn't address the extirpation of black life. Um, it just underscores what I was saying a moment ago, which is we're not having a conversation at all. This is not a serious discussion or engagement with the issue. Some of this stuff is very hard to say. There is failure everywhere in the uh, aftermath of the transformation of American society, which was the civil rights movement. I can remember within my own lifetime what race relations and racial conditions were like at the middle of the 20th century. We are a completely different country now. Um, so that the um, African-American family is decimated with two-thirds of kids born to a woman without a husband, that the development of the human potential of African-Americans because of failed public school systems lags so far behind that affirmative action has become institutionalized as the way of creating, quote, diverse and inclusive institutions of elite higher education, that um, African-Americans are vastly overrepresented amongst those being punished, and the discourse is one of... Um, systemic racism and mass incarceration and not one of the catastrophic failure to socialize young African-Americans into patterns of behavior that are consistent both with social order and with their own personal achievement. Again, this, this speaks the, um, to my mind, the failure, the failure of a way of looking at this problem, looking at this problem as if conversations about race is as distinct from hard work of developing the human potential of black people could actually get us where we want to go. I was reading uh, uh, a lot of your interviews and articles, Glenn, and um, one of them, I think it was the interview with Reason with Nick Gillespie. You talked yeah. about uh, the progress that has been made, civil rights and so on, opportunity. You said, uh, I think the fact that it's not the same country uh, the underlying structures have moved much more in the direction of civil rights for African Americans, equal rights uh, for uh, for us, together with the fact that there are very substantial performance differences, interesting phrase, across a range uh, of social indicators, including crime and violence and encounters with the police, disadvantageous to African Americans, disfavoring African Americans. The combination of these two things, the opening of the society, basically, and persisting underperformance and differential achievement across racial lines, that's what's creating, I think, what's creating this crisis, right? Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> thanks for catching that. I think that was pretty well put, if I do say so much. No, it was very well put. Uh, fill, fill it in. I mean, I, the Civil Rights, Civil Rights Act, Opportunity. Um, in fact, oh, well, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, 
no, I, it, it's failure in the, you know, uh, there's a system blame argument that's going on. America systemically racist, America, white supremacy, et cetera, uh, that's been endorsed by all the cultural barons and so forth. And then there's the objective social reality that's going on, uh, which is that, um, A, the institutions have been completely transformed. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, now you lose your job if you say the wrong thing about, uh, you know, um, uh, race and whatnot. Uh, the, the issues of discrimination, they have to hunt and peck to find it. Uh, there, you know, I'm not just talking about the laws of the 1960s and 70s, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing, Fair Credit, and so on like that. I'm talking about changes in social mores. I'm talking about the emergence of a of a massive African-American professional and middle class of black people penetrating the professions from which they have been previously excluded. Um, I, I think the moral occupation at mid-century of African-American women was domestic servant. Uh, I think uh, uh, farm labor was the leading occupation of black men when Gunnar Myrdal was writing his book, The American Dilemma, in the 1930s and 40s. Um, all of this has completely changed. Uh, Barack Obama was president of the United States for eight years. He was commander-in-chief of the most powerful military in the history of the world. He's a black man the last time I checked. Um, so they're now reduced to arguments such as the following. Stacey Abrams loses an election for governor in Georgia. She still hasn't conceded that election. She loses an election, and she has a theory. Her theory is that the unobserved motives of Republican legislatures, when they uh, uh, exercise their prerogatives to set the uh, rules and the guidelines governing elections, were motivated by anti-black bias and an attempt to deny black people access to the ballot, such that if she had just moved her position on social issues uh, a half a deviation toward the center, she could be governor of the state, but instead she gets to go around uh, uh, campaigning now nationally against the uh, something called voter suppression, which is supposed to be the modern-day version of Jim Crow because we need the civil rights—I'm I'm sorry, the Voting Rights Act was gutted, supposedly, because the Supreme Court decided that you couldn't keep uh, the southern states in jail forever based upon something that happened uh, 75 years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's where, that's where we are. Uh, uh, so, uh, I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting here a little bit. I've yeah. kind of lost the thread of what I was trying to say, but I'm, I'm very exercised by this because this is my country that we're talking about here. Um, people are rioting in the streets over ephemera. I don't know if you have seen it. I just watched the body cam video that was leaked of the interaction between the police and George Floyd in Minneapolis. And the idea that that incident, as horrific as it was and as culpable as that police officer, Derek Chauvin, may yet be found to have been, that that incident somehow exemplifies an assault on black people in this country, it's absurd. It's, it's a kind of mass hysteria, a kind of collective madness uh, that has ensued. And the fact that major credentializing and legitimating institutions, I'm talking about the mainstream media and the press, have completely bought into this distortion of social reality on behalf of what is, in effect, a racist theory about the nature of American society. Everything is race. Derek Chauvin had been motivated by race. Anything that happens between a black person and a white person, including a uh, uh, unpleasant interaction in a public park, becomes emblematic of some story about race. So, yes, I believe the reason that we've wandered down this rabbit hole um, is because the reality of the condition is too 
painful to confront, that reality being, A, American society basically reforming itself from its racist past going back to slavery uh, uh, in the 20th century, and B, African-American society for a variety of reasons that we could spend a long time talking about, not being able to take advantage of those opportunities that were presented to the extent that people would like to see. Um, and so uh, here we are. That's what I think is going on. But yes, the combination of the actual success of racial reform in the U.S., uh, insofar as it could be affected through law, uh, on the one hand, and the lack of success of uh, substantial as elements of the African-American population in the face of that reform. Let's talk about that side of it. <clears throat> Let's put the uh, systemic racism, uh, fault of whites, uh system aside for a minute and let's talk about the underperformance differential what accounts for it if things are better on the external civil rights opportunity education opportunity what's the problem what are the main problems where's the beef and 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 what might we do uh, what could we talk about or do that could be constructive uh Okay, so I don't know, two years ago, the Manhattan Institute asked me to write a little paper about persisting racial inequality, and I came up with a formulation, which I will recite here. Uh, that formulation is the contrast, two different narratives about blacks' lagging status in the society. One of them I call the bias narrative, and we've been talking about it. Racism is everywhere, white supremacy, blacks don't have a chance, wealth gap, et cetera, slavery casts a long shadow, blacks don't have a chance. Between the world and me, America is essentially racist, et cetera. That's the bias narrative. The other I call the development narrative, which is that schools have failed, families are disorganized, communities don't have enough fathers in them, the culture is distorted, there's the wrong values, the wrong things are being extolled, uh, held up as ideals for our children and pursued assiduously. Uh, there's too much victim embracing of a victim narrative about oneself. There's a kind of learned helplessness. Uh, people have lapsed into a posture where they think someone is coming to save them and nobody is coming. Politicians are craven. Uh, race card playing is everywhere um, and so on. And uh, as a result, uh, human potential of African-American youngsters is not being realized. The development narrative versus the bias narrative. So what I think is going on, I mean, what, what I think is the root of the performance problem is a failure of development. Now, there's blame enough to go around. If I say schools are not educating children, I can't really blame, can I? the children or the families of those children for a politics that doesn't, I'm talking to a former secretary of education, and allow for the institutional reforms, which we know what to do. It's not as if we don't know what to do. We know what to do. Um, And uh, we can't get it done uh, because of impediments to institutional reform that would open up the system so as to allow for uh, the children and their parents to be the ones who are benefited by the, the allocation of resources, the provision of educational services. We won't let that happen. Um, and uh, that's just one of the things. I'm just saying I don't blame black people for that, but I do say that the way in which we conduct ourselves and the way in which we form our families and raise our children is pertinent to the outcomes in those children's lives. And I can't get around the fact that uh, without a wedlock birth at such a great extent, and again, this is one of the things that you can't talk about. Let me finish the sentence. Without a wedlock birth at such a great extent that the majority of African-American children do not have the benefit of 48 hours a day 
of adult supervision time. Of two would not one breadwinner of a gender-specific role model through the sensitive years of adolescence that would show them how to conduct themselves most effectively as adults, that they don't have that benefit. That is uh, definitely an impediment to the development of their human potential. And again, like with the Black Lives Matter, except when they are extirpated by people who it is not politically convenient to call attention to, this is another one of these issues that can't be discussed. I mean, if I were to mention Daniel Patrick Moynihan, it died it's 60 years ago, practically, uh, that it was decided we will not discuss this. And so we don't. And the out-of-wedlock birth rate when Moynihan report was, what, 23, 24? 25, 25%, something like that. Um, it was about where the rate among whites is now. So so things that can be talked about and not, and, and you just talked about one that is avoided assiduously by, oh, by a lot of people. The everywhere. But, the right is, the right is everywhere. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., he's a holiday. He's a postage stamp. What he actually stood for, the completion of the implicit promise of the American founding, that's what he actually stood on. That's what he ran on, yeah. so to speak. Color blindness, the idea that race was really an insubstantial aspect of our human uh, character and that we should build our institutions on that, that's not a joke. Malcolm X has more cachet in the memory of young black people than does Martin Luther King, more animating force in what drives a Nicole Hannah-Jones at the New York Times or a Ta-Nehisi Coates at the Atlantic and whatever to write what they write. Malcolm X is a more forceful um, figure in the, in the minds of quote, activists uh, who would uh, improve the condition of African-Americans than is Martin Luther King. That's just a statement of fact. Yeah, I just want to clarify well, for the audience because the way it, I, I heard it, and I think Claude heard it too, yes. Martin Luther King Jr. has been reduced to a postage stamp. Shouldn't be because he's a monumental and critical figure, correct? Thank you. Of course, that's what I mean to say. I mean, I, I, and, and I mean to say that he's not taken seriously on the ground. He was a Christian minister. Yeah, I know. For example, I mean, dare I we even mention the role of Christianity in the actual accomplishments, both of the emancipation, uh, but uh, also of the transformations of mid-20th century? Mrs. King asked me at one point to uh, come down and speak at Spelman. And I did, and then I spoke at the chapel, and I referred to Martin Luther King Jr. as Reverend Martin Luther King. She came up to me afterwards. She said, thank you very much. Most most people now just call him Martin or Dr. King. But the Reverend was his most title most important to him. But he was a preacher, a man of faith, a man of God, a man of Christ. Indeed, the power of his message, as transformative as it ultimately proved to be, could only have been what it was because of the fact that he was drawing on these um, ideas and beliefs um, and, and, and concepts and commitments that are characteristic of uh, what was the Christian nation at that so time. He, so is he something of an embarrassment to the new advocates for uh, uh, systemic racism? Is he my, Does he have to be... Ignored or even canceled? I mean, forgotten, uh, relegated to the status of a postage stamp? Uh, well, yeah, relegated to the status of a kind of icon who, you know, uh, just invoked in passing, but who, as I say, not, not taken seriously. Right. Let's wave at him, but let's not read what he said. Take it seriously. So let, let's stay with uh, faith and Christianity for, for a minute in terms of performance in the black community. So I've heard some people suggest, particularly in relation to the out of wedlock births, that what we need more than anything 
is not another program out of Washington, but what we need is another Great Awakening. Um, that if you had a modern day or several modern day Martin Luther King Juniors, this is what they'd they'd say. That uh, I don't know the the Million Man March. I don't know. Is there is there any, is there anything to that? Is there? Yes, the question is straightforward. Is there a social policy that we could adopt at the federal level, a state level, more powerful than a rekindling of faith? If there is, what is that? Should we do both? I don't know that we can rekindle faith. It's somehow that feels like pushing on a string. Right. Um, and for policy, we talked about education a little bit. Um, I gather that now law enforcement and policing will be a big area of, of policy reflection. The uh, decarceration movement is well advanced and so on. Um, I don't know. I'm also talking to a former drug czar. I wonder what you make. I mean, you were doing the interviewing, but I could ask you because it's a very interesting phenomenon. All of these Soros-funded uh, progressive DAs around the country, uh, no pretrial uh, uh, detention, uh, closed down Rikers Island to let people out because of COVID-19, uh, defund the police is only the latest uh, innovation on that. And it's not only coming from people of color, it's, it's coming from uh, progressive elements uh, more broadly. Joseph Biden has to be careful as he steps choosing a vice presidential candidate so as not to offend people should he pick somebody who actually served as a district attorney or prosecutor somewhere. Um, yeah, where they bring up where they bring up his records. You're right. I was the first uh, director of National Drug Control Policy. I was confirmed by the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is Biden's committee, and he used to scold me for not being. I was regarded as a pretty tough or mean drug czar, but uh, he used to scold me for not putting enough attention on law enforcement and uh, prison. <laughs> I could, That's the author of body count. And like, <laughs> yeah, I could release that stuff and destroy his campaign. Maybe you know, show pictures of uh, of Joe and I standing together. Um, yeah, no, I, I I take the question. It's very serious, uh, and um, you know, the opioid epidemic is much worse than anything we had in the late eighties. Um, yeah, and and the, and the prison policies were reversing. We really did have some success in getting crime down in this country, as you know. Now we're reversing a lot of that. So, okay, we we can't rekindle faith. Could uh, what does it take? What does it take in Chicago? I mean, I, let's go to Chicago. Let's go to Ground Zero, where the where the body count is. Your phrase you just used. Well, what does it take? So I have a dream. I have a dream, and 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 in this dream there is a grassroots uprising. I'm going to channel uh, Robert Woodson right now. Good. Bob Woodson Good. of the National yep. Center for yep. Neighborhood Enterprise. You, you this is a dream now because I have no reason to expect that it would actually happen, but it would be my fervent hope. There's a grassroots uprising. And one after another, Maxine Waters type falls, falls to a, a challenge, not from a, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, uh, kind of a socialist left, but from a, I'm going to call it organic and rooted uh, a communal expression of African-American authenticity coming out perhaps of the church. There's no reason why it couldn't come out of the church. I'm talking about the Christian church, but it could also quite possibly come out of a different kind of orientation, which would be more in the spirit of uh, Malcolm X and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the Muslims, the kind of nationalist. It doesn't necessarily have to be Islam, but a kind of black nationalist uh, uh, spirit. That, that's another way of imagining this uprising. But the uprising would be, um, 
you people have failed me. You people are more interested in what gets written on the op-ed page of the New York Times than in what's happening in our community. You people say you care about black lives, but you actually don't give a damn about black lives, and I can prove that based upon how you spend your time and what it is that you talk about. You people are not educating our children. You people are consorting with, um, you know, and now we're going to have a list of the protected classes of the gay, trans, uh, uh, anti-heteronormativity, uh, postmodern uh, cultural expression of feminist and whatnot, which actually has very little to do with the social history, social history of the African-American people coming up out of slavery in the 19th and through the 20th century in this country, it has very little real resonance, very little deep root in the expanse of African men. You people who say this is what the uprising would be motivated by, this would be their argument, this would be their, their bill of indictment against the incumbent class of African-American leadership. You say, throw open the borders and let them come in from Latin America as they will. And you assimilate the moral authority of our movement as black people out of slavery to some generic black and brown people of color intersectionality. And in doing so, bait and switch the American people. Because America actually does have moral obligations to the descendants of slaves, but it does not have moral obligations to every person who is not of European ancestry who happens to live on planet Earth. But you people, so goes this critique, have appropriated our special place within American history. You people who have contempt for America, you side with the enemies of my country, the only country I've ever known. So goes this deeply rooted, authentic, communal expression of disgust at postmodern African-American leadership. Uh, it would be an argument, something like that. And I could see, you know, the uh, possibility of that appealing to a broad swath. If we could ever get their ear, if we could just get past the doorkeepers, if LeBron James would get out of the way and we could talk to people uh, about their interests, uh, about what's happening in their communities, about, uh, you know, the potential of this great country and their potential within it, um, that's the kind of transformation. And maybe the church would play a role in that. Um, but that's what I think is needed. Uh, again, it's a dream. All right, not a spiritual or moral um, revival, but uh, I, I, I wonder if this could be triggered. I just saw it yesterday. You know, all these cities that are going to cut their police forces and a poll of the black community saying very large majority wants the same or more, not fewer cops. I remember, Glenn, when I was drug czar, I went up to Harvard, gave a speech, but before that, I spent the day in the city and talked to people, uh, mostly in, in the inner city. And, and what I heard was, Mr. Czar, can't you keep these guys off the street? When you know they go to prison, they come right back. Um, can't you keep us safe? These are mostly people of color. And I heard it all day. And I had actually had Governor Dukakis with me and Senator Kennedy for part of the day till they got tired of hearing that. But when I went to Harvard that night, the only thing I could hear was legalized drugs. I didn't hear one citizen of Roxbury say, why don't we legalize drugs? Not, ne never, you know. I never heard people yeah. in, the, in the project say, hey, I went to 120 cities as drugs are. Mostly went to you know, housing projects and, you know, places where women and children live, you know. And, uh, and, and the predators come, come in, but never, never heard the argument that, uh, you know, we should, we should well, legalize. You could say, I mean, you know, to, to try to be fair a little bit to some of these people, the impact of incarceration in these communities is, is, 
you know, it's it's a very heavy impact. And sure, sure. They, they emphasize with some of these youngsters as well as are afraid of them and whatnot. So it's a kind of complex ambivalence. And, and it, you know, there was a book I read by a guy called William Stunts. He taught at Harvard Law for a long time. He's dead now. Uh, about American criminal justice, in which he, he made an argument that I always uh, uh, had some fondness for, which is if we got to lock them up, at least allow the people who are suffering being locked up to have some, you know, participation in the carrying out of the punishment. I don't mean literally to be involved in the administration of the punishment, but I mean feel as if the institutions that are doing it are responsive to their to their will, so that. Uh, you know, the jury nullification is like the per- perverse and pathological expression of this, where, you know, uh, Johnny Cochran gets up and he says to a jury that's all black, that's mostly black, let's not send another young black, you know, brother to prison. And the jury acquits, even though the facts are, uh, you know, are not uh, consistent with acquittal. That's a perverse, we don't want that. That's a subversion of justice. But, but the idea that uh, the community would be it's in some way or another a participant in or have, have some sense of uh, authorization or the extension of legitimation to the processes of punishment. I guess what that translates into practically um, is that the um, uh, institutions that are carrying on the law enforcement and punishment have some credibility in the minds of the people. So when they carry out this punishment, it doesn't feel like a, something coming in from the outside and crushing their community. Something like that. That was that was a long speech. You might disagree with it, Gilbert. No, 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 no. I, know, I understand. I understand. I want to come back because time's limited now, and I want to ask you, in light of that, in light of what we're talking about, and I, I think I know the answer because I've read every, I think every essay I could find that, or interview with you. Thank you. You're not you're not optimistic, right, about all this? No, no. I'm very pessimistic. Um, I, you know. <laughs> Race relations got worse over the course of the eight-year presidency of a black president. They got worse. He could have done more on this front. Oh, right? he did it. He, it was, uh, this would be unkind to Barack Obama, but I'm not sure it's inaccurate. He blew it in terms of the risk portfolio and set the country back. And in fact, one of the things that only a black president could have done didn't do, which was when rioting broke out in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Baltimore, communicate clearly and without equivocation that law and order was the first imperative of the state, that duly constituted juries uh, get to make these decisions, and it's their call. In fact, you need to go back inside your house. I mean, people have a legitimate uh, upset, and we have to understand that they may come out of their homes and do some things, and we want the police to go easy and stuff like that. I thought it was exactly the wrong message. He made Al Sharpton into the ambassador from his government to black America. That's yeah. Al Sharpton. Yeah. Arguably an anti-Semite and a racist. I mean, arguably, based on his own history. That was Al Sharpton, a Democrat. There's no doubt that he's a race hustler. Barack Obama made him... Barack Obama pronounced on the Trayvon Martin matter before he even knew what would happen. He was wrong. He was just wrong, objectively wrong about what happened there. Um, he split the difference when he should have stood, stood firm. Uh, he had my brother's keeper, which was a gesture uh, in the direction that I would have liked to see him have a much more full-throated. He needed a full-throated and coherent policy about cultural reform 
as a component of uh, extending opportunity to African-American young. He needed to look the camera directly in the eye and say that I may be a black man, but I'm a president of the United States of America. And in the United States of America, we don't tolerate this stuff, the stuff that went on in the aftermath of these phony incidents of Michael Brown. He was not a hero. There was nothing heroic about him whatsoever. Uh, And and so on. Uh, So he didn't do that. Um, he, uh, Valerie Jarrett and whoever else he was consulting with and, and uh, the, his attorney general, Eric Holder and others, um, uh, acted like uh, uh, they, they were sitting around a cocktail party somewhere being politically correct on the racial issues. They were leading the government of the United States of America. I, I think it was all, I think Obama's handling of the race issue was awful. I think an opportunity was missed. I wonder whether or not we have what we have had in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Was had Barack Obama look directly into the camera and said the words "law and order." I wonder. I wonder if editorial writers at the New York Times and the Atlantic and uh, uh, Slate and and uh, Vox and whatnot would be so easy to elide the difference uh, uh, to, to to overlook to to give a pass to uh, the murderous barbaric violence that's unfolding in American cities affecting black people. If Barack Obama had uh, made a point of saying that it was unacceptable, there may be a bad cop here or there, but the real threat to African-American safety in modern urban America today is violent youths who take their weapons and in combat with each other and in random uh, assaults on the populace make life unmiggable for decent people. He could have said that. He could have used words like decency and unacceptable, barbaric behavior, but he wouldn't do it because it would have been inconsistent with the Martin Vineyard cocktail party set, I suppose. Yeah. I'm sorry. Maybe I should take that back. That's no. a cheap shot. But you, no, no. You what, people, what people aspire to be, what, where, they, where they want to be, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I remember people in this town selling everything to get a to get the, the presidential box at the Kennedy Center. You know, what, is, what does Thomas More say to him? Richard Rich, but for whales, but for whales, you know, really, uh, you know, what, what do you sell your soul for? But, but, but you believe what you just said, Glenn, and I believe Obama might have had a real transformative effect for the better if he had taken advantage of the opportunity. Uh, it's easy to say; it's hard to know for sure. But yeah, I do believe it. Yeah. Uh, I believe he could have shaken up the narrative. He could he could have dislodged the narrative a little bit uh, by uh, by you know running counter to the. Um, the, the you know right. the counter to the current um, and to what would have been expected of a you know racially well, sensitive. If, if you move from um, leading identifiable figure being Martin Luther King Jr. to leading identifiable figure being Al Sharpton, it suggests progress is not being made and a reason for for pessimism. But this is America, right? And and we we have a way of writing things. We we the antibodies kick in, right? I mean, won't people figure this out? You said a couple times in in the last uh, thirty minutes. Uh, you know, p- people are going to get mad. They're going to say you haven't done anything for us, really. You wanted to appear in the op eds, and you want to go on TV. What have you done to us in our schools? Gosh, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And by the way, I'm very optimistic about the country overall. It's just the race relations yeah. problem that I see is okay. You know, sort of hopeless, and it may be that I've just been banging my head against the wall for too long, and have you know, have lost the ability to look ahead. Well, see well, a brighter future. We want you to keep banging. We got to ask you because a few people I talked to said you were coming on. They said, 
He's a black guy, right? I said, yeah, black guy, really smart, right? He's he's pretty tough, pretty conservative on a lot of things. Yep, yep, right, right. How the hell does he survive at Brown? Can you answer that? <laughs> did you see my letter, uh, open I letter did. on President Pat? I did. Boy, do yeah. you, you do that often, do you? You write them and say... No, I, I, I don't. I don't. But back in 2014, 15, when the students were all going crazy and stuff like that, I don't know, it was maybe 2015, 16. I was on leave. I was out on the West Coast. I'd come back from time to time. And I did have a couple of meetings with our president, Christina Paxson, and our provost, uh, Rick Locke, a political scientist, who's a friend. And I was, you know, I was saying that diversity and inclusion stuff is off the hook. I mean, don't do this. Don't, don't double down on affirmative action. Rick, the provost, kept saying, we're going to get black scientists. I said, well, there's just not enough to go around. If you get them, they're not going to have them at Cornell. And if you and Cornell get them, they're not going to have them at Stanford and at Hopkins. <laughs> I mean, just take a look. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, so you can't all, and every provost at every one of these institutions is saying, we're going to do it and we're not going to lower standards. And I said, that can't possibly be true. Not for all of you. You know, don't you see the systemic problem here yeah. and, and stuff like that? And they, they would kind of, you know, patronize me. They tolerate me. They respect me. Uh, but they were determined to go their way. Uh, so it's a kind of, um, you know, agree to disagree thing here. Uh, I don't, I have a handful of, you know, allies of people I go and, you know, we have a drink with and we exchange emails and we commiserate and we agree when Ray Kelly was not permitted to speak here at Brown. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's been years now, but I thought what an atrocious, what a, what a devastating thing to the integrity of our institution. Uh, will these colleagues acknowledge uh, you publicly? Will they acknowledge you publicly uh, or only privately? Um, they'll acknowledge me only privately. I don't get any kind of support, quote unquote support. Not that I, I really need it. Nobody's tried to mess with my classes. Um, I win my students over, I think, the sheer force of intellect and eloquence. You know, I just kind of go in there, and they don't necessarily agree. Some do, uh, quietly. They very seldom will speak out in support of things I'm saying in the classroom, but they'll come around to my office. Most don't. But most think, well, Lowry, you're, you're pretty smart. You seem to know what you're talking about. I see where you're coming from. I don't agree with it, but it is a respectable point of view. That's kind of the day taunt that I have with my students. My Afro colleagues here despise me. They hate my guts, and I have almost nothing to do with them. I do have some black friends here at Brown, but it's not because of you know intellectual, political, social science kind of uh, work. The people who are doing that stuff, um, you know, the Tricia Rose is probably the best known of my colleagues does that for kind of stuff. She has an open door with the administration, but um, you know, she and I barely have anything to say to one another. Well, uh, but nobody is encroaching on my, you know, nobody's tried to keep me from getting my salary or prevent me from, you know, kick me out of my corner office or uh, uh, in any other way make me feel um, feel unwelcome here. That no demonstrations against you? No. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, knock on wood. <laughs> Good. You have a lot of students? No. Um, no, I don't have, I mean, I teach a class, I taught a class with 90 students in it uh, as undergraduate, which is a pretty good size uh, yeah. division undergraduate course here at Brown. And then I teach a PhD student who are 15 or 20. Um, but I do have, I have occasional students who are not in any of my classes, but who seek me out, uh, including a, a classics guy, he's reading Greek and Latin, and he's a constant pianist of some quality when some of these competitions and stuff he's now a junior um and he and i are doing the uh free speech course that i mentioned in that wall street journal um profile yes, of me yes um his name is david Sachs. he's a brilliant uh 21 year old uh, 
uh, pianist and uh, Greek. Yeah, he, he had me going back and reading, uh, you know, uh, Plato on the Apology of Socrates and uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. And and now we're you know, and we've read Mill and and we read uh, Alan Bloom's The Closing of American Mind. It blew his mind. I introduced him to this book, and he said, "God, he could it could have been written yesterday." That's right. Um, That's right. And so I have some. I have a few students with whom I've become very close, and I cherish my um, my friendship with them. Uh, but I don't have a quote lot of students. Well, you deserve deserve more. You deserve they deserve uh, they deserve you. They're brown. They're bright kids. They should go to you, and and uh, they'll be much better off if they do. Thank you, Glenn Lowry. Thank you, Glenn, very much. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, Claude, let's talk a little bit about Glenn Lowry. I mean, sure. he's a force of nature, a strong, strong character. Yeah, very passionate, too. And, uh, you know, my last question, how they, how are you doing at Brown? I could have said, how the hell do they let you stay at Brown? <laughs> I mean, these are, you know... Black people with these kind of views can be run out of town, canceled, you know. But, you know, he's thought through his positions. He's, very, he's a very smart guy. And he comes at it not as a, um, what we call the soft, you know, stuff, uh, but he comes at it as an economist, mm-hmm. an MIT economist. Right. He's a, he's a rigorous guy. He does data. He does numbers. But I've always thought that uh, there's nothing like the transformative effect of faith. Mm-hmm. I learned that. I guess most recently in the drugs are job when we saw the treatment centers and the ones that worked the best were the faith-based ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but someone said when you, you know, when you got the devil at your throat, you need an equally strong countervailing force. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that ain't a public policy federal program. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And those were the programs with the most successful rates in terms of people getting their lives together. And, you know, there is this tradition of church to people mm-hmm. in the black community. The church is very important to the black community. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll say this, King de Sharpton may not be progress, but reverence still matters in, right, in the right. black community, mm-hmm. you know. So if there's a force to be mobilized, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe there's a political revolution. But we'll see. Uh, well, this is another good chapter in our conversation yeah. about race in America. Next week, we're going to talk about COVID, education. Oh, man, is this the opportunity we've been waiting for to transform American education, K-12, <laughs> and 12 to 16? Maybe so. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.